If you have a Bible with you, I encourage you to turn with us to John chapter 19 and verse 38. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the pew backs in front of you. I encourage you to grab one of those. If you don't know how to navigate the Bible, there's a table of contents right in the front. And, uh, and you, no shame. Just open it up, find where it's at, and, uh, and get there with us. John chapter 19 and verse 38 is where we're going to be this morning. And we're going to continue our series, really, and, and there's a subtle change to the slide that you might notice. We've been, the past few weeks, looking at the road to the cross, right? And last week culminated with the crucifixion of Jesus. Well, now, for the next couple of weeks, we're traveling from the cross, right? Because, of course, to get to the empty tomb, you have to move on from the cross. Those events had to take place, but now we are past that. Because on Easter Sunday morning, we celebrate that the tomb is indeed empty because he is risen. On Sunday morning, December 26, 2004, a magnitude 9.1 earthquake struck off the coast of Sumatra Island, Indonesia. The quake instantly ruptured a 900-mile undersea trench in the Indian Ocean. And the force of the earthquake at its epicenter was like releasing the energy from 23,000 nuclear bombs. The devastation, however, was not felt at the epicenter. Why? Because it was in the middle of the ocean. Instead, the, the shock waves, they culminated and they created this powerful tsunami with waves towering into the sky and traveling more than 500 miles an hour. The speed of a jet plane and crashing into the densely populated areas on the coastlines of Thailand, Sri Lanka, and India. The total death toll during that earthquake and the tsunami that followed would climb to nearly a quarter million. You see, the shock waves, make note of that, the shock waves were felt hundreds of miles away. The devastation from the shock waves was the only evidence of what had just happened. You see, those who perished under the crashing waves of the tsunami would never understand the earthquake that had brought that tidal wave their way. They would never understand or see the earthquake itself. They didn't see the 900-mile trench under the ocean. You see, they only saw the effects of the earthquake without seeing the quake itself. You see, you and I, we sit in this room today, gathered for one reason and one reason alone. We sit here together because the Lord is risen, even though not a one of us were eyewitnesses to that event. Not a one of us were on that first Easter morning. Not a one of us peeked inside the empty tomb. Not a one of us heard Mary crying outside of the tomb. But you see, the shock waves, the shock waves, the after effect of that beautiful morning, that powerful event, we feel them even to this moment. And it's why we gather in this room. If you're taking notes this morning, and there's a listening guide on the back of the bulletin there with the sermon outline, so you can follow along with me. There's a main idea to everything we're looking at this morning, and I want you to write this down if you can. The resurrection is still the most earth-shaking moment in human history. And this is important. 
with effects that transform our lives even today. Right? There is not a more, more earth-shattering event in the history of the world than the notion that a man was once dead and three days later had risen. That had never happened, never has happened, and never will happen again this side of eternity. This moment in history and the shock waves it's created. It's why we gather in this room. My hope this morning as we revisit resurrection morning is that we will understand how our lives are forever changed by the resurrection. Now I want to state the obvious. For some of you this morning, you already know the joy of resurrection. You've trusted and followed Jesus as your Savior. Well, for this morning, there's going to be a renewed sense of joy. Easter every year, no doubt, for for you and I, those of us who have trusted Jesus, it is a fresh reminder of the power of God on that resurrection morning. As we reflect upon his crucifixion, his burial, and his resurrection, it is a sweet reminder for us that he is alive. And through the power of that resurrection morning, we can have hope in life eternal. But for some of you this morning, and I'm not singling you out, I'm not going to come stand next to you, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or anything like that. For some of you, you've never known the joy of resurrection. You're wandering through life, trying to put the pieces together on your own. Maybe you're here this morning because a family member invited you. Maybe you're here this morning because you're a teenager and mom drug you out of the bed to be here with you. Maybe you're here this morning just out of a sense of obligation or urgency because you should be in church on Easter. There's a word in this for you because you see, that resurrection morning, those shock waves that were felt that morning, they are felt even today. And so let's go back to that first Easter morning. Let's see how lives were transformed then and how I believe lives can certainly be transformed now. You've been sitting for a while this morning, so I invite you to stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word. John chapter 19, beginning in verse 38. And again, because you weren't standing near the cantata, we are going to read through verse 18 of chapter 20. So bear with me. The Word of the Lord is this. After this... Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because of his fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might remove Jesus' body. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took his body away. Nicodemus, who had previously came to him at night, also came, bringing a mixture of about 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. They took Jesus' body and wrapped it in linen cloths and the fragrant spices, according to the burial custom of the Jews. There was a garden in the place where he was crucified. A new tomb was in the garden, and no one had yet been placed in it. They placed Jesus there because of the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby. Chapter 20. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark. She saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. 
So she went running to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and, and I don't know where they've put him. At that, Peter and the other disciple, they went out, heading for the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. Stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then following him, Simon Peter also came. He entered the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there. The wrapping that had been on his head was not lying with the linen cloths, but was folded up in a separate place by itself. The other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, then also went in, saw, and believed. For they did not yet understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to the place where they were staying. But Mary stood outside the tomb, crying, as she was crying, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where Jesus' body had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you crying? Because they've taken away my Lord, she told them, and I don't know where they've put him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not know it was Jesus. Woman, Jesus said to her, why are you crying? Who is it that you're seeking? Supposing that he was the gardener, she replied, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. Turning around, she said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus told her, since I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go and tell my brothers and tell them that I'm ascending to the Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them what he had said to her. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for resurrection morning. We are so grateful that the tomb is empty. We are so grateful that this is truth that we testify of today. And God, I pray that you will use the truth of your word the power of your word to transform and change lives, to encourage us, to challenge us, and send us out as your people into a lost and dying world. Lord, use your word and only the power of your word to draw people to yourself. We ask your blessing on this. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Again, this morning, we're looking at how the resurrection transformed lives 2,000 years ago. And how that same resurrection and the power of that resurrection still transforms and changes lives even now. I want you to see three ways that lives were changed that day and how our lives are changed even now. The first way is this. The resurrection transforms fear to boldness. The resurrection transforms fear to boldness. Now, it's easy to miss the significance of what's happening in verses 38 through 42. Jesus had just been crucified, right? We had seen the, the glorious display of his passion on the cross of Calvary. We had seen his life exchanged for ours. We had seen him pay the penalty and the sin debt for our sin in our place. And even on Easter Sunday morning, it's really easy for us to, to fast forward from the cross to Easter morning. 
It's, it's really easy for us to miss the significance of what's going on in verses 38 through 42. It's almost as if, if you're like me, you say, listen, get on with the show, right? We know what's coming. We know that the tomb's going to be empty. So what's the point of what we find in these five verses? You see, John includes the details of Christ's burial, and he does this for a reason. What we're going to do for just a moment is look at the characters involved. There's two main characters at the end of chapter 19 that I want you to make note of. The first one is Joseph of Arimathea. Now, we learn from the other Gospels that he was rich, that he was a person of influence, and he was a member of the religious crowd. He was closely associated with the very ones who had brought charges against Jesus that resulted in his sentence of death on the cross. But we find in verse 38 that he leveraged his position of influence to request Jesus' body to be released to him. Now, this was an extraordinary activity. This was not usual. Now, it was custom for the Romans, after the crucifixion had taken place, especially of those who had, been, had charges of sedition brought against them, which that's what Jesus was. He was one who had caused an uprising, if you will. And, and when they would crucify them, they would let them die on the cross and then leave their bodies there hanging for days on end. This gruesome activity was meant to be their last act of humiliation. Why? Because they weren't worthy of burial in the Roman culture. And guess what? The Jewish people, they couldn't touch the dead body of Jesus. Why? Because it would have brought defilement on them right before the day of preparation. So this was significant. It was significant that Joseph of Arimathea, a traditional Jewish man, he went to Pilate. And he said, I want you to release his body to me. You see, normally what would have happened is he would have hung on that cross for days on end. And the ravens would have finished him off. He would have had no burial. There would have been no tomb. There certainly would have been no empty tomb. But instead, Joseph boldly, he laid aside his position of influence. His reputation among the religious crowd. And he went to Pilate. And he said, release his body to me. Then there's this other gentleman here, Nicodemus. Now, only John mentions Nicodemus in the burial narrative. And then John says what? Notice what it says back in verse 39. It says, Nicodemus, who had previously come to him at night, there's a detail there. He also came, bringing a mixture of about 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe. So it seems as though Joseph's responsibility was to go and request the body. That was his act of boldness. And Nicodemus, this other religious gentleman who had been in the background, hiding in the darkness, if you will, in the shadows, his job was to bring the things to prepare Jesus' body for burial. You see, these allies, they got together. And they cared for Jesus' body after his crucifixion. But you see, back in John chapter 3, we learned some other things about Nicodemus. There's a lot to his background we need to understand. And John even mentions here, he came to Jesus at night. Why is that significant? It's because Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews. He was a member of what is called the Sanhedrin. Again, just like Joseph, he was a member of the very crowd that had brought charges against Jesus. And yet here, he comes out of the darkness. He comes out of the night. For the first time, he lays aside his position of influence among the religious crowd, and he also meets Joseph there 
at the tomb. Perhaps you remember in John chapter 3 and verse 16, most significantly about Nicodemus. We know this verse well, right? Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus. He's teaching him about new birth and new life. And you know what he says? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have everlasting life. Nicodemus heard those words first from the lips of Jesus. And here he was, right after the crucifixion, boldly going to bury his Savior. So there we are. Jesus has just died. These gentlemen are preparing his body for burial. This was a lengthy process. This didn't happen in just moments in time. No, even there's a recap there of these burial cloths and these aloes and these, these spices that were there. This was a lengthy ordeal. And they had to hurry, though, because the, the day of preparation was coming. There was a lot to get done, and so they needed to get him to a tomb. And as the Lord would have it, there was a tomb nearby, and so they placed his body there. To them, this was something they felt obligated to do. You see, it made sense to them that they would bury the body of Jesus. Why? Because they were impacted by his teachings and certainly by the death he had just died. But there's a bigger story here. If you're taking notes, make sure you make note of this. There is no insignificant action in God's plan to reconcile the world to himself. There is absolutely nothing insignificant in the economy of God when it comes to his plan for redemption. You see, for Joseph and Nicodemus, this was an ordinary activity. They felt like, yes, Jesus was special. There was something unique about him, and so they buried his body. There was so much more going on there. Let me prove this to you from Scripture. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 9. You can make note of that in the margin of your Bible. You see, we find in Isaiah 53 all of these prophecies related to the crucifixion of Jesus. And, and we've made note of those as we've moved through this sermon series. But in verse 9, there's a detail given. The only place that a detail is given about his burial. Listen to what it says. Isaiah writes this prophecy. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with a rich man at his death. Because he had done no violence, and he had not spoken deceitfully. Centuries before, centuries before his crucifixion, centuries before his resurrection, even his burial and the way he would be buried was foretold. Joseph and Nicodemus, they were just caring for the Savior's body. But there was more to the story. Why? Because there's no insignificant activity in the economy of God. You see, I fear that many of us never attempt bold things for God because we feel like bold actions are relegated to a special class of Christian. You say, well, missionaries do the bold things, right? They're the ones that, that sell their possessions and they, they pack their family up and they get on an airplane or a boat and they travel to a faraway land and they put their lives at risk. That's for them to do. Or, or maybe you think about the bold evangelist, right? Right? And they stand on a platform in front of thousands of people and they issue a call to respond to the gospel. And you say, yes, bold activities are for them. Or maybe you relegate it to the biblical heroes, Peter, James, John, and Paul. Here's the truth, friends. We may never comprehend the impact of our Christian boldness in the ordinary activities of our lives. 
Even you and I, when we walk out of these doors and we go to the restaurant to eat this afternoon, or maybe you sit down across from a lost family member at the table this afternoon, or or maybe you're at the grocery store and you have a a kind interaction with the, the young lady or young man who's checking you out, or maybe you have that interaction with a coworker. And you uphold a Christian witness. Listen, these are all bold activities and nothing is insignificant in the economy of God when it comes to the plan of redemption. That was true for Joseph and Nicodemus. And it's true for you and I. But notice this second transformation that happens. The resurrection also transforms doubt to belief. Transforms doubt to belief. You see, as we get to chapter 20, some days have passed and and some characters re-enter the story. We find Mary Magdalene, Peter, and John. Although John is not named, I won't get into details here, but this is certainly John who is with Peter. And they show back up. Now, understanding the characters in chapter 19 was critical, but there's something else I want you to see here in these first few verses of chapter 20. I want to draw your attention to a specific word that occurs again and again and again. You see, John is careful to paint a detailed picture of what these eyewitnesses to the resurrection saw and experienced on that first Easter morning. Maybe you can circle these words as we work through these verses. In verse 1, I want you to circle the word saw there. You see, Mary saw the stone rolled away. Right? This was a stone that, that probably re- weighed somewhere in the range of a couple of tons. And guess what? It was rolled away. This was a very significant event. Then move down to verse 5. We find there that John saw the linen cloths lying in the tomb. Verse 6, the very next verse. Peter saw the same thing. You catching the point? These people had seen something unique. They had seen something incredible. They were eyewitnesses of this resurrection. And then in verse 8, John, it says, he went inside the tomb, and you guessed it, he saw, and what happened? He believed. You see, everything that happened on that morning was wrapped up in what they had seen, friends. I want you to understand something. John is careful to paint this picture that they had seen everything concerning the resurrection. Verse 7, we find they saw the grave linens. They were folded and left to the side. Why? Because Jesus no longer needed them. Although Lazarus had risen from the dead by the power of Jesus, he came out of the tomb wearing the grave clothes. But Jesus, oh Jesus, he wasn't going to need them again. And so he folded them and laid them to the side. You see, the bigger implication in these eight verses is that already the eyewitness accounts gave proof. They substantiated everything that happened on the resurrection morning. Make note of this. There are good reasons to believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead. There are good reasons to believe that he rose from the dead. In fact, I would would say this. There are better reasons to believe he actually rose from the dead than there are that he did not. I want to give you three of them really quickly. Verse 1. I'm sorry, number 1. Many of these eyewitnesses would go on to die for their belief in the resurrection of Jesus. They would give their lives because they believed this was the truth, that he had indeed risen from the dead. We find that Peter was crucified upside down as we read in the historical accounts beyond Scripture. 
James, we read, was stoned and clubbed to death. Matthew, we find, was burned alive. You see, each of these men, they could have recanted. They could have said, you know what? Here's the body. Oh, we're sorry. We didn't mean to cause such an uproar. And none of this is true. But they didn't. Here's what's important about that. They were in a position to know the truth. And they testified of that truth, even to the point of death. But secondly, another good reason. The religious authorities could not present the body of Jesus to disprove the resurrection. You see, it would have been easy. They could have said, hey, listen, I know these guys are saying he was risen from the dead, but, but here's the corpse. Right? Here's his crucified body. At any point in time, if anyone would have said, here's the body, listen, all of this would have been for nothing. Jesus would still be a dead man. But no one could produce the body. Not the religious leaders and not the Romans. In fact, we find in other gospel accounts the embarrassing details that there were Roman centurion. They were there at the tomb that morning guarding the tomb. And guess what? Not even they could speak a word against this. Third, another piece of evidence. Both pagan and Jewish writers, apart from the Bible, testified of the resurrection. They testified that Jesus was unique. They testified that he was the Jesus from Nazareth and that something had happened incredible. There's this gentleman named Josephus. He's a Jewish historian writing in the late first century. And he writes these very words. Listen carefully. Again, Josephus, you won't find his book in the Bible. He didn't write anything that's included in those 66 books, but listen to what he did say. It says, he appeared to them, spending a third day restored to life. For the prophets of God had foretold these things and a thousand other marvels about him. He was a Jewish man. He had every reason to say that Jesus was not who he said he was. But instead, even he was testifying of the truth. These are good reasons to believe he's actually risen from the dead. These are good reasons for doubt to be transformed to belief. It was good enough for Peter and for John. And it's certainly good enough for us. But finally, note this. The resurrection also transforms sadness to joy. It transforms sadness to joy. As we get to verse 11, we find Mary alone. Or so she thought she was alone. Let's go back and read that one more time. Down through verse 15. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she was crying, she stooped to look into the tomb. Maybe she was going to see that it was empty, right? Just like Peter and John had. So she looks in and she saw two angels in white sitting where Jesus' body had been lying. One at the head and the other at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you crying? Because they've taken away my Lord, she told them. And I don't know where they've put him. Having said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there. But she didn't recognize him. But look at verse 15. Woman, Jesus said, why are you crying? Who is it that you're seeking? And even then she had mistaken him for the gardener, right? Because it made sense. It was a garden. And maybe the gardener saw something happen to Jesus' body. So she says, hey, just tell me where he's at. Let's make all this go away. She didn't understand. But then... But then, in verse 16, notice what happens. Jesus 
said to her, Mary. He spoke her name. And guess what? She knew. She instantly knew at that moment that this was Jesus. Mary Magdalene, of all those who had followed Jesus in his earthly ministry, she is the only one mentioned to be at the cross and at the tomb on Easter morning in all four gospel accounts. It's not the apostles. It's not Peter or John. No, all four gospel writers make note. Mary Magdalene, she was at the cross. And she was there that first Easter morning. You see, this Mary had seen the last drop of blood fall from Christ's lifeless body. And now she knelt at the Savior's feet as the first witness to the resurrection. But then listen to what Jesus says in verse 17. He says, don't cling to me. I can just imagine Mary, she's, she's fallen at his feet and she's, she's you know, like, a, like a toddler. She's wrapped her arms around his legs and she says, and she says, hey, you're here. Don't go anywhere. We thought we had lost you. Notice what he says. He says, I've not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers, that's important, and tell them that I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. You see, in these words from Jesus, we see two anchors for her joy and for our joy. Make sure you write this down. Our adoption as God's children is a constant reminder of God's goodness. Our adoption into the family of God, that reality, that truth, the fact that we are children of God is an anchor for our joy. I want you to see how this is true. You see, at the end of verse 17, Jesus, as he's giving her instructions, he tells her to go. And he says, I want you to tell the disciples to tell my brothers. By the way, in the entire gospel account of John, this is the first and only time that Jesus calls them his brothers. Something had changed. That relationship had changed. But then there's also another detail here. He says, tell them that I've not gone yet to your father. You see, this word father comes up a lot in John's gospel. In fact, Jesus uses this word 108 times to describe God. So it comes up again and again and again. 27 times he refers to God as father or my father. And 71 times he refers to him as the father. But only once. Only once, friends. Just this one time in the entire gospel account, he says, your father. He says, our father. Why? Jesus was emphasizing here that something had changed. The relationship had been transformed. Mary's position had radically changed that day, which leads us to this last truth that is an anchor for our joy. It's not just our adoption that gives us joy. The message we've been given to share is a constant reminder of God's goodness. You see, when I have a believer come to me and they're struggling with depression or anxiety or or difficulty in their life, I talk to them about evangelism. You say, well, that's really insensitive, Pastor. I mean, there's a lot going on there. But here's the truth. I share the gospel with them again. We start there. And it's not because I'm insensitive, it's because it's our joy, our hope, comes from preaching the gospel to ourselves and to others. Jesus tells Mary to go and report to his disciples that he had risen. 
It was a big deal that Mary was given this commission and not a man. Understand, women in this culture had no voice, and yet it was Mary who was the first herald of the gospel. Peter might have preached at Pentecost, but oh, Mary, she testified for the first time of Jesus' risen body. All throughout scriptures, we see God changing people's positions, changing people's reputation, changing people's lives forever. Abram became Abraham. You remember this. Jacob became Israel. Simon became Peter. And guess what? Saul became Paul. Why? Because God was changing and transforming their lives. He also gave them new vocations. David the shepherd became David the king. Rahab, the prostitute, guess what? Rahab, if we look at the genealogy of Jesus, Rahab the prostitute became Jesus' great-grandmother. Matthew, the tax collector, became Matthew, the disciple. And Paul, the persecutor, became Paul, the preacher. You see, God changes lives. He brings joy to them that is everlasting. These changes happened only by the power of the resurrection. But here's the truth for us. I promised you this morning that the shock waves of the resurrection are felt even now. Here's the truth. The boldness that Nicodemus and Joseph had, it's yours. It's yours. That boldness is yours if you'll just trust in the same Jesus that they trusted in. The unwavering belief that Peter and John had, that gave way to all of that doubt, all of that speculation, all of that wondering, was Jesus really who he said he was? Listen, it's yours if you'll just look inside that empty tomb like they did. And Mary, oh Mary, that joy that she had that never left, it's yours if you'll look into the face of the same resurrected Savior that she did. Paul gives us a promise in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. He writes this. This is the same man who had been radically changed by the gospel. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and everything has become new. That promise is yours as well. For some of you this morning, this is a fresh realization of the power of the resurrection, that it truly continues to transform and change your life. But the call this morning is this. For some of you, you've never trusted in Jesus. And you come in here this morning and maybe you got a warm and fuzzy feeling whenever we were singing the songs. Uh, Or or maybe, uh, maybe just maybe you heard some words spoken this morning that just made you think twice about who Jesus is. And maybe, just maybe, even just sitting in that pew at this very moment, you got those cold chills or those tingles. You know what I'm talking about. Something's happening. Here's what happens, though. Every Easter, every Easter, people come into this room, they have those feelings. And just as quickly as they have them, they leave. Nothing changes. Everlasting joy never happens. True belief never happens. Bold Christian witness never happens. So here's what I invite you to do. That morning changed their lives forever.
this morning can change your life as well. So I invite you, after we sing this morning, meet us at the, meet us at the back door as you're leaving. I would love to have a moment to talk with you, to share this gospel with you, and invite you to respond to Jesus. Fill out that blue card. Indicate on that box that that you need to make a decision to trust Christ. I would love to walk you through how to respond to the gospel.